It was the spring of 2008. I was in uh, my class at Cedarville University. It was the class with, it was anthropology and angiology. It's a mouthful, isn't it? I was a senior, and I remember being in this class, and I was sitting there uh, listening to the professor, and all of a sudden my phone rang. And I looked down, and it was my dad, and I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll get back to him after class. So I silenced the phone and went to voicemail. And then right away he called back. And you know when something's wrong, you can just feel it. And I knew at that point something was wrong. And so I, I walked out into the hallway and I took the phone. I could tell my dad was upset. And he told me that my stepmom, Norma, she's sick. And I said, well, what kind of sickness? And, and he said she had the flu. And I thought, well, why is he upset? Well, my stepmom, she had rheumatoid arthritis. And she took a medicine that helped control the pain, but a side effect of controlling the pain was that it suppressed her immune system. So if she got the flu, she really, really got sick. And in fact, it, she had, was admitted into the hospital. And so I told my dad, I said, Dad, do you want me to come home? And he said, yeah, I think you should. Now my dad, he was a truck driver on the road at the time, and so he was a few hours away, and I was three hours away, and so I said, yeah, I'll definitely come, and hopefully we can get there around the same time. I remember going back into my class and telling my professor that I had to go, and he stopped class and prayed for me, which I thought was really cool. I remember getting my books. I remember running across campus because my class was further away than my dorm. And so ran across, got uh, all my books, got all my clothes, threw them all in a bag, and then I ran out to my car and I started to drive home. Well, about midway through or so of that drive, I got another phone call from my dad. And this time he was even more upset. And I said, Dad, what is wrong? And he said, when he walked into the hospital... Above the speakers, there was a code blue. Now, unbeknownst to my dad, at the time, that code blue was for my stepmom. She stopped breathing. So by the time my dad walked into the room and could assess the situation, his wife, my stepmom, was already intubated and already hooked up to all of these machines, and she was in a coma-like state which is really tough because he didn't get to talk to her. And the last time he saw her, she was fine. And then this time when he saw her again, she was in a coma. I remember getting there and I felt the same feeling probably my, my dad felt. I, I walked into the room and, and when you see someone who is healthy, then all of a sudden you see that person lying there like that. It, it is just messes with you. And there we were at the hospital, and day by day, we were hoping things would go better, but then we found out through her doctor that she contracted sepsis, which is a blood disease, and not everybody dies from that, thankfully, but for her, with the compromised immune system, we know things weren't going well. But I didn't give up. I was praying, I was believing that God would heal her. I remember it was a Sunday afternoon, and uh, I didn't go to church. I didn't leave the hospital too much, and I remember uh, I got a phone call, and it was Todd, and he said, hey, come out to the elevator, and when I walked out there, my whole guy's Bible study was out there, and they circled my dad and I, and they prayed for us that day. It's something we both still remember to this day. We continued to walk through this week, again, up and down, up and down, but as we continued through the week, it started to go down more than it was up. I remember it was a Wednesday, and uh, my buddy Corey decided to stay the night with me at the hospital. And so there in the waiting room, we tried to sleep on the floor, just wanting to be as close as we can to what was happening. I remember that Thursday morning waking up, and the doctor basically told the family 
that we need to go Sarah Alaska buys, that she wasn't going to make it. I remember walking into that room with my dad and my grandfather and uh, my two stepsisters, Norma's daughters, and sitting there, of course, me saying goodbye was very difficult, but sitting there when you have to watch your dad say goodbye to his wife and see these two girls who adored their mom say goodbye to her, and, and it was just one of those times where it was one of the most difficult moments of my life. And to complicate things, that day was Valentine's Day. Not a day that you want to lose your spouse. I remember that Thursday, she died early, and uh, we met with a funeral home and got her uh, things in the paper. And so her funeral was going to be on that Saturday. And I remember my dad saying, Eric, I, I want you to speak at her funeral. And for, for me, I was young. I was 22 years old. I was in college, but I had never at that point done a funeral. And I remember I had my laptop open and I was trying to write out things that I would say to my dad and to my stepsisters and to uh, my stepmom's mom and to her family. And I remember every time I'd write something, I, I would want to delete it because it felt so hollow. What do you say to somebody whose life is broken in a million pieces? How do you begin to comfort them? Since that day, over 13 or 12 years ago now, I should say, I've done up to 30 funerals, and I'll tell you, every time I'm sitting there with a family, no matter who it's for, I, I look at them, and I just think to myself, what do I say? How do you communicate your heart? What do you say to the people that are grieving the loss of their loved one? It's a difficult thing. And many of you in this room, you understand loss, whether it's a spouse child, a grandchild, a mom, a dad, a grandparent, a best friend. Death is hard. There's nothing worse. And to grieve that loss, it's, it's complicated. Grief is very, very complicated, and you're not really sure how to do that. Well, there is this story found right in the Gospels that help us do that. We're in our last week of our Encounters with Jesus message series. And there's this story in John chapter 11 that I'll tell you, I oftentimes will share at the funerals that I do. And while I understand this isn't a funeral, what I do know is that if you have never lost somebody, you will. And that's not to scare you or put fear in you. That's reality. All of us are going to lose somebody that we love. And how do you grieve appropriately? How do we know that God is in that? How do we know that he cares? Well, John chapter 11 tells us exactly what God has done about death and about grief. Before I walk you through this story, I want you to understand that grief is complicated and also that grief is not just for those who are processing a physical death. There are deaths surrounded by, uh, surrounding us today, death of a dream, death of a relationship, death of a job. So many different deaths that you and I are processing today. I believe that this story will help us take our next steps in that. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 11. You can look it up on your phone. I'll put it on the screen for us today. But we're going to jump right in. And we're going to see Jesus' interaction with a family. John chapter 11, verse 
1. A man named Lazarus was sick and he lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. Jesus, he had this relationship with his family. He loved this family. Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus's and he was sick. But he wasn't around where Mary and Martha and Lazarus were. And Mary and Martha knew that Jesus would want to know that his good buddy was sick. And so the sister sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is sick. Now, if you've ever read the Bible, especially the Gospels, where it's recorded about Jesus' life, it's his biographies, you will see pretty quickly that what you're expecting of Jesus usually does not happen. <laughs> Jesus likes to throw curveballs at people. And this response to hearing about Lazarus being sick is a curveball. Because watch what happens. He says this. But when Lazarus heard about, uh, when Jesus heard, excuse me, that it would, oh my goodness, let me start over. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. He's saying, listen, Lazarus' sickness is not going to end in death. But then if you fast forward a few verses, it says Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go and see him. So Jesus, let's get something straight. You're telling me that he will not die, but then you just said he will die. What is the answer? Are you confused? You know what's amazing about Jesus? Not only is he not confused, he's bringing home an incredible point at this point of his story. It is true that Jesus, or excuse me, Lazarus will die, but it's also true that he won't. That Lazarus will die, just like all of us, but he also won't. And we have that opportunity as well. But before I, I get there, I want to show you Jesus' response to these two sisters because they're completely Different. So I want to skip Martha's just for a moment and fast forward to Mary. And look what happened when Jesus interacts with Mary. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. I love this verse because it shows us Mary's vulnerability and her realness. She's saying, look, I don't know what you were doing. You're probably performing some miracles, doing some amazing things out there. That's fine. But if you were here actually caring about my family and paying attention to me, my brother would not have died. How often have you thought about that with God? God seems too busy for you. If, if he would just show up, then maybe this situation wouldn't happen. I love that Mary can be this vulnerable with God and so can you. Just tell him how you feel. He can handle that because watch what Jesus, how Jesus responds to Mary in this situation. He says, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and it was deeply troubled. And they told him, Lord, come and see. And then he asked, where have you put him then? Jesus wept. The hardest thing about my job and the most privileged thing about my job is that I get to be a part of many funerals. At any time, we can get a call 
at this church or on my cell phone, someone that we were expecting to die or someone we weren't expecting to die, they died. And one of us pastors will jump in and serve the family. Combine that with losing my stepmom, losing my stepdad, losing some, some important people in my life, I have been around a lot of death by the age of 34, more than I had ever, ever thought I would. And because of that, I have heard so many people say so many different things to those who are grieving. In fact, I have said some things as well. And for the next few moments, I just want to unpack some of these sayings and to just gently ask all of us to reconsider how we approach those who may be grieving what we actually should say and should do for the person that's grieving. Because oftentimes, here we are, we're about to walk through the funeral line. Here's this person who lost their spouse or their child. What do you say? What do you text a friend after they lost their best friend or their brother? What do you say? So if you're like me, and you don't always know what to say, you say something like this. They are in a better place. Or, hey, let me know if you need anything. Or you're surrounded by people who love you. And though it's hard now, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. All of these things are really nice things to say. And if I know you well, you mean it. You're not saying these things to hurt the person. You're saying it because you actually care about them. But can I just gently tell you that these things actually aren't caring for you, it may make you feel better, but for the grieving, it doesn't. For instance, they're in a better place. You know what's awesome about hope? Is that because of Jesus, those who believe in Christ, we can say that with confidence. They are in a better place. And that warms my heart. That warms your heart to know that. However, it's one of the most insensitive things you can tell somebody. You want to know why? To the person that lost their spouse, the better place is that when they go home after work and they pull into their garage and they open the door, the better place is that their spouse is on the couch waiting for them. The better place is when they make dinner, they're not making it for one, they're actually making it for two. The better place is when they go to bed that night that they look over and they see someone occupying the other space. The better place is for those who are going to celebrate a holiday when they look around the table and they see the missing chair. That's the better place. For you, it may be a better place because they're not the most important person in your life, but for those people who are grieving, the most important place is next to them. We don't say that anymore, friends. The better place is with us. We're grateful for eternity, but we don't say that. The other one that's on this list that's something that I say often, in fact, I said it, I think, this morning already. <laughs> I'm a hypocrite, sorry. Let me know if you need anything. Now, that is a nice thing to say. Again, you probably mean it. Let me know, like, I want to help you. The problem, though, is that the grieving don't even know what they need. In fact, those who are grieving don't want to eat. They can't function. 
they are in this unbelievable fog that they can't even see through. Their lives are in a billion pieces. And so they don't know what they need. And so when you say, let me know what you need, what you're doing without even knowing it is actually putting a burden on them. Because they don't know what they need. Let alone how to tell you what they need. I'll never forget, I was standing right here, right there next to my mom as hundreds of people walked through to, to give their condolences to us with the loss of my stepdad. And I remember when I was sitting there, I was greeting my family and friends, but also trying to keep in tune with my mom to make sure she was holding up okay. And I kept hearing this phrase over and over again, hey, let me know if you need anything, let me know if you need anything. And finally, I don't know why, I asked her after the funeral, I said, mom, how does that phrase make you feel? And her response was so insightful. She said, it's as if people are handing me a blank check and telling me to fill out an amount. I thought, that, that's interesting. Imagine someone giving you a blank check and saying, hey, put whatever amount you want. And you're like, man, do I put a penny? <laughs> do I put $10,000? What do I put? And that's exactly what we're doing to the grieving, and we don't even know it. We need to fill out that check already, so to speak. So here's what you do. What you do is you text your friend or your family member who's grieving, and you say to them, hey, I know your favorite dish is my mashed potatoes and, and the chicken that I make. And those brownies that you love, I, I know that's your favorite. And so what I did was I made it, and I put it on your doorstep, and if you want to eat it tonight, great. If you want to freeze it, great. But I want you to know that I'm, I'm there. Even just through your favorite meal, I'm there. And why that's important is because the grieving aren't eating. They don't want to. Or you say to your friends, hey, you pick the day this week. I don't care if it's Monday or Tuesday or Friday, whatever. We're going to wherever you want to go. We're going to find a table in the back. And we're going to sit there. And if you want to talk... You can talk. If you want to cry, you can cry. If you want to sit in silence, we can sit in silence. But I will be right there with you. You don't give them the option. Or you go to their house, you knock on their door, they open the door, you push them aside, and you walk through with your buckets and your mops and your brooms and your rags, and you go and clean their toilets because they haven't cleaned their house. They haven't wanted to. They don't care. But it's dirty, and you just show up. Be the need you know they need. Do for them what you would need done for you. And if you're not sure what that is, just show up. And be that constant in their lives, because I guarantee you, after the funeral, after everyone said, I'll be there for you, 99% of them aren't. So be there. Or when you say you're surrounded by people who love you, again, it's true. They look around, there's my best friend, there's my sister, there's my mom. Where is my spouse? Where is my child? Where is my brother? Where is my friend? Yes, you surround them, but the person they love the most isn't there. Or when we say, though it's hard now, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Again, for you there may be, for, for those who are grieving, I mean, I was talking to a dad the other day. We talked about it was the eighth year of his daughter's death date. And I just said, tell me how you're feeling. And he couldn't talk because he had tears in his eyes. And that was eight years ago. And you could say, eight years, that's a long time. But when your 
heart is broken in a million pieces and you'll never get some of those pieces back? Oftentimes the light isn't there for them the way you would want it for them. And oftentimes people say, time heals. That is a lie. Time helps. Time doesn't heal. You can't heal that piece of your heart that you'll never get back. And friends, instead of rushing our family and friends' grief, can we enter that with them? That's the best gift you can give. You want to know why? That's the best gift that God gives us. Because in death, Jesus gives his presence. What did Jesus say to Mary after she said, where have you been? And if you were here, you wanted to die. What did he say to her? Nothing. He wept. How incredible is that for a moment? Just sit in that for a second. Now, Jesus could have put his arm around Mary and say, Mary... Lazarus is in a better place. And guess who could say that with confidence? Jesus. He knows. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, look, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. He would know. Put his arm around her. And he wept with her. That's the thing about Christianity. It sets it apart. In other religions, you're trying to figure out where God's at. In Christianity, you see that Jesus enters in to the point where he cries alongside of you in the midst of your grief. Whether it's a loss of a loved one, a loss of a job, loss of a dream, a loss of a friendship, he is there holding you up, weeping with you. It's life-changing stuff. And guys, especially, you know, some of you ladies as well, but I know the guys in this room because I'm one of them. For some reason, we have believed this toxic masculinity message that we have to be strong and we're not allowed to cry and we're not allowed to grieve. Let me tell you, you are missing out on true healing. Because if he wept and he feels the pain, you're allowed to as well. I talked to a wife last week in Port Clinton, and I sat with her, and I prayed with her. I said, what can I pray for? She said, pray for my husband. I said, yes. How can I pray for your husband? She said, he won't let anybody in. It's ruining our marriage. It's ruining our family. Jesus can weep. You're allowed to as well. And it's a sign of strength when you do because you're modeling your Savior. So what I want to do for the next few moments is just to understand his presence. It's all throughout scripture, and I just want to put a few verses of scripture to sit in as we reflect on his presence. I'll just read it, and I'm not going to even say much about it. I will not abandon you. He gives power to the weak, and strength to the powerless. This is my go-to. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. What I love about this for me, when he says he rescues those whose spirits are crushed, 
when I read that, I, I read a God who may not fix the situation, but when I am crushed, he is there to hold me up, to truly care about me. His presence is always there, but in some, for some reason in the brokenness, I can taste and sense his presence more than I ever, I ever can otherwise. The one that gets me. You keep track of my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. This past week, my wife was putting one of our kids to bed and I was downstairs emptying the dishwasher. My phone went off and it was a video from my mom and it was a video of my stepdad. And since he died a couple years ago, I've only heard his voice probably once. Couldn't do it. And I, I pushed the button and hit play. And immediately I could hear him. And it made tears just roll down my eyes. It was broken in a matter of seconds. And as I'm gripping forks, about to put into the drawer, and I'm just crying, missing him, thinking about how he's celebrating a birthday, and I'm thinking, we didn't get to do that with him anymore. As tears are rolling down my face, before they hit the ground, they hit my Savior's hands. There's something about that. At your weakest, most vulnerable moments, he is there. And then a promise to the disciples and to us too in the midst of our grief, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In death, Jesus gives us his presence. But it's not just that. I don't know if you noticed, but there's a weird verse that I shared with you before. It should have maybe piqued your interest. He says this, Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her. A deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Jesus is angry. Now, why in the world would Jesus be angry? Is he angry at Mary and Martha for not believing in him? Is he angry at Lazarus for not praying because he, he, before he died? I mean, why is he angry? The same reason you and I get angry. Death is not supposed to happen. We don't get used to it. I, I did a funeral a couple years ago for a four-year-old and on his fourth birthday was his funeral. I was sad, but I was angry. How could this happen? I remember we were getting ready to celebrate one of my son's birthday a few years ago and I got a call that one of our former students in our youth group who I love so much, he took the turn a little wide, went into a tree and died instantly. I had to do that funeral and I was so angry about it. Or when I had to do a funeral a couple weeks ago of someone who is 90 plus in their life, even then I'm like, this isn't supposed to happen. We're not supposed to lose our parents. We're not supposed to lose our children. We're not supposed to lose our spouse. We're not supposed to lose our best friends. Jesus got mad at the same thing you and I get mad about. Anger is a stage of grief. And a lot of people think, you're supposed to go this, 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 and this throughout grief. Well, no, 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 no. Grief is a ping pong ball. It goes this way and this way and this way and this way. You can never predict it. But one of those is anger. And what I love about Jesus is that he got angry, but his anger turned into love. 
Because not only in death does he give us his presence, in death he gives us his promise. A promise that goes beyond the grave. You see, when he was talking to Martha, he didn't cry with her. He gave her truth. And this is what he said. He said this to her. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Take that in for a moment. Anyone who believes in me, who trusts me, who believes I am who I am, anyone who believes that will die, but they won't. They will live after their death. Everyone, he says, who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? And her response, she said, yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. You go back to this. You tell me this is an incredible news. That Jesus not only enters into the sadness, he enters into our death. He literally on the cross took on death himself. Lots of times when we talk about the cross, we talk about sin and shame and guilt and our past. And thank you God that he forgives everything. Everything. But more than that, when he died, he represented us. And when he died, he said, I am taking their place so they will never have to die. And then three days later, when everyone counted him out, all of his disciples went into hiding. All of a sudden, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And when he did that, what he said was, yes, you may die, but you don't have to die. Friends, if you are like me, this Jesus stuff, it's just a part of you and you get used to it. But if you and I ever get used to the cross, may we repent of that. If we do not get just pumped up about not having to die someday, then we need to wake up spiritually. Because there is a God who took our place so you and I don't ever have to die when we take our last breath on this earth, we take our first into eternity. It's seamless. Come on now. Are you awake? I'm serious. This is life-changing stuff. Those in this room who you don't believe, Jesus, he's asking you the same question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? You may be a naturalist. You may be an atheist. You may say, well, I don't believe that. Life you live and then life you're buried. And I would say, what an empty life you live. <laughs> I want to know that my life counts here. And I also want to know that beyond the grave it counts as well. And in Jesus, he allows that to happen. He triumphs over death. The question that you have to answer is, do you believe this? Because a life without hope is a life not worth living. See, in Jesus, in him, throughout death, he gives us his presence. And he also gives us his promise. 